All right, well, we are going to spend a few weeks in a new series addressing some issues related to our discussions regarding the future ministry of the Disciple Center and the use of our facilities here. Uh, This specific subject is um, something that we've introduced and actually experimented with in the last couple of years. The subject is house churches or Havarot. Uh, Our experience as a congregation has been limited, though not completely uh, without having some experience, to a few times when we met in homes during problems um, with the sanctuary, with the heat or uh, rain, and uh, also sometimes when the 91 freeway was under construction, which seems to happen from time to time. At that time, we met in the homes and in various locations, and I mentioned at the time that we did that, that I wanted us to consider this not as an emergency situation, but as a strategy for the enhancement of the relational nature of our congregation, uh, as well as a form of outreach and extension of the congregation. So the time has come to look at that a little more seriously and intently, and today I'm going to introduce the concept in the series, We'll unpack it in the next several messages, and and we'll have a discussion of it, not just for our Q&A, but also um, in context to some way of moving forward in that context. So I I want us to begin with Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, a passage that uh, we're all pretty familiar with. It's used in our liturgy. It's used in our Holy Day services. It's one that many of us are familiar with and has been uh, preached in churches that we've been in quite a bit, at least a verse of it has, and that's the verse that I'm focusing on. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching uh, or they see the day drawing near. Now, uh, this very familiar passage admonishes the believers to engage um, the faith that we have in common and our community confidently. We're to draw near to God and our great high priest. We're to hold fast to the confession of our hope And we are to connect relationally to each other in order to stimulate one another to good deeds uh, and uh, in the context of coming in contact with each other. So we're not to forsake. That word forsake is to let go or to drop. It just means to, you know, just stop doing it. Uh, We're not to forsake our gathering together. And this is supposed to increase as we see the day of the Lord approaching. That day is going to be a day of darkness and trouble right before the kingdom uh, comes into its fullness. And we're going to need a faith that is strong 
and complete and mature and we're going to need each other to remain faithful to the end. The scripture says at the end the love of many will wax cold and brother will betray brother to death. So this gathering together that the scripture is talking about is not simply a statement that we are to go to church and that's how it's preached every way. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Get your tush in church on Sunday. I mean, that's, that's basically uh, how it's preached. Um, uh, that idea would not have entered the, minds of the, the mind of the writer of this letter to the Hebrews, nor those Jewish believers who received this letter originally. So we must look at the gatherings of the early believers to understand this, and with that understanding, adapt it to our own situation and context. Now, as we talk about this, the term that we're going to see in several verses uh, that is used for these gatherings in the New Testament is oikon ecclesia, house of gathering. And that's probably the best way to describe the term. But it's translated most commonly as church. The word church is somewhat a problematic term uh, when we translate Ecclesia that way because it misses really the understanding. The word originally, Ecclesia, had the idea of calling people to come to a meeting. We need to talk, come and come here, and then people would gather. And that gathering was Ecclesia. Uh, we began to see that word not as assembly or gathering or even congregation. All of those words would be appropriate translations of that word. But in the English Bibles, we began to use a word that came out of uh, the Irish kirk. And then we took the K-I-R-K, that K sound, and we softened it to ch, and we got church. And then church took on a whole meaning of its own. Uh, it, it tends to be a building, it tends to be a set of programs, it tends to be an organization, it tends to be a denomination, all those things. None of that would be in the mind of the readers of this text when they are talking. He's saying, don't forsake gathering. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So, uh, these, uh, this idea needs to be understood. Now, the Jewish term, a more recent term for what we're going to be talking about, is Beit Havarah. Beit meaning the word house, and Havarah really coming from the word of friendly love or friendship, and the idea is it is a house of fellowship. Uh, sometimes said Beit Havarah, but most often just simply the word Havarah. And of course, in Hebrew, uh, like... Shabbat, uh, Sabaot, Shavot, that O-T at the end means plural, so Shavuot is a plural of these, of these gatherings. Now, within Israel, before the time of Jesus, and continuing during and after his ministry, there were two types of gatherings that developed, in addition to the gathering of the uh, synagogue that developed uh, prior to that. One of these types was a, you could almost say a monastic type of small community uh, formed to separate themselves uh, from the assimilation that was going on in the Greco-Roman world. 
and the corruption of the culture, what they thought was the corruption of the Jewish culture and the religious establishment, particularly related to the temple. Uh, these groups often were single-sex communities. Often they might uh, stop marrying because they thought the day of the Lord was uh, near at any time. The Messiah was going to come and the kingdom would be established. And you get those that kind of writing even with Paul when he says, the time is short where those who are married ought to be as if they're not married. And those who aren't married might want to consider not marrying for, for because we're at the short time. That, ap- uh, uh, that apocalypse kind of mindset. Uh, that is there. The Essenes at Qumran are an example of this type of community where they separated into a private community to wait for the Messiah and the kingdom of God to come. Very private, very isolated, don't interact with anyone, we'll see you later. That kind of, that kind of movement. We have that in Christianity. Christianity goes back and forth between a monastic kind of uh, mindset, let's stay away from everybody, to a let's engage the culture. And then back to the, that, that's part of Jewish and Christian notion for people to create private communities in that sense. The other group, the other type of uh, community that developed, uh, in a sense, supplemental or as an alternate to the synagogue, was a community of families or households who attempted to live in less isolation than these monastic types, maintain a communal life that reinforced their Jewish identity and their religious priorities uh, for their children so that they could influence not only their children but but those who were... uh, attracted to them. It's hard to, we can't call them converts because they're not converting to a different religion. They're actually becoming intensified in the religion uh, that they belong uh, to. So uh, these groups uh, were commonly found among the Pharisaic communities that existed in the land of Israel, but also throughout the diaspora. Paul certainly fit one of those groups as he was a Pharisee in that context. Now these communities, these two type, very private communities and semi-private communities, um, different than the synagogue, which tended to be more public in in that framework, uh, operated within and external to the synagogues, which developed in the Babylonian exile and which became part of the religious community um, by those who returned with Ezra, Zerubbabel, and, and Nehemiah. Jesus and his disciples attended all of these types. They, they would meet at the temple. They went to the synagogues. And we find them in these house groupings throughout the Gospels uh, from time to time. As we see in Peter's house and the home of Lazarus. And there are a lot of people there. It's not just the family. It's, it's this kind of havara kind of thing. Not called that at the time. That's a later word, but it's, it's that idea. So, uh, I want to talk about how these things begin to show up in the New Testament and their use among believers. I want you to begin uh, with me in Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at several passages as I introduce this subject. I'll be referring back to this stuff as we look at different aspects of this 
over the next uh, several weeks. And then as we talk about our own adaptation, because certainly we're not living in the in first century times, but how do we adapt that for the benefit of our own congregation to enhance our relational co- context and to have influence uh, beyond, our, beyond our own community. In Acts chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 42, we have the situation where you know at Shavuot where uh, uh, they have gathered the Holy Spirit. They've gathered really in a sense to celebrate uh, the giving of the Torah and, uh, and the harvest. And connected to that, God grants the Holy Spirit as he had promised uh, to the prophets. Now, there are not a lot of Presbyterians there. There are not a lot of Baptists there. Pentecostals are not there. This is not a gathering of the Christian churches. It is a gathering of Israel. And God is pouring His Spirit out on Israel as He had promised. And 3,000 are going to be baptized in that context. This is, this is a uh, preparing of the remnant of Israel because they are going to be scattered again when the temple is destroyed back into the diaspora with the rest of of Israel awaiting the time when they'll be uh, called back uh, into the land when the Messiah returns. And what we get are these words. Uh, This is talking about those who were connected to the apostles. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. Breaking of bread there may be liturgical for the, uh, the, the Shabbat bread or the Passover uh, type bread that becomes the Eucharist. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their properties and possessions and were sharing with them and with anyone who might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. That means the rest of the Jews, like this group, they were becoming zealous for Torah and they they had the joy of the Lord and they were communal and that was very appealing in that context. Praising God, having favor with the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Then we see Peter and John go to the temple. So these early community of believers, Jewish believers, uh, have the Spirit of God. They are gathering at the temple every day. They continue to worship in the temple. They continue to obey the Torah and the dietary laws. They continue to observe the Shabbat. And in that context, they're also gathering in homes and talking of the things of the Lord and reinforcing one another and being participant with one another in their homes and having their meals together in close, close fellowship. And in that close, close fellowship, realizing that some of their people had needs, they would take care of those needs by the stewardship of their resources in that context. We see this continuing, if you look real quick at Acts chapter 5, verse 42. I just want to do this quickly because if we do all the verses, we we won't have time. Uh, But again, it says, uh, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Now, 
important to know that we're looking at the Jerusalem group. Those groups that were in the Galilee were not going day to day to the temple. The temple was available day to day. The other groups that were only going to the temple for the holy days were probably doing this in the synagogues and from house to house. In other words, the local congregation and house to house. In Jerusalem, the temple where the local congregations would gather in the portico of Solomon and then house to house. Okay, So that's, that's the context uh, after the resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost in that context. So, we can assume this pattern continued when the Yeshua community, these early believers in Jesus, uh, continued except when they were under pressure from temple and synagogue authorities who were removing them from time to time. When they get overly uh, uh, noticeable, then the authorities would say, stop teaching in this guy's name, they kick him out, they, they'd arrest him, they'd do those kind of things. Uh, at that point, the houses of believers would become the primary place of gathering, but temple worship would continue until the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. Now we know that one of those who persecuted the disciples was Saul of Tarsus, also called Paul, who under authority from the Sanhedrin took believers out of their houses, in these contexts, and out of the synagogues, uh, and began removing Jewish and Gentile disciples of Yeshua or Jesus. Uh, and uh, so what began to happen was these, particularly the Gentile groups and the Jewish groups, would begin to form their own uh, ecclesias, their own uh, churches, their own congregations, their own house groups. Uh, that So they're, they're piggybacking uh, and part of the... Uh, the uh, Jewish community, now they're kind of a parallel or a sect within the Jewish community in that context. Now what about in the diaspora? What about outside of Eretz Israel, the, the land of Israel, the promised land, in the area where the Jews have been dispersed and many God-fearing Gentiles are also part of that context? Well, I'd like you to turn to Acts 19. I'm leaving a lot of Acts out because that section is more about what's going on in the land as Gentiles and the Samaritans begin to uh, be included through the gospel. But uh, what we have is there's a persecution that takes place. That persecution takes place in Jerusalem. Most of the believers start relocating and they go up towards Antioch. But the apostles stay in Jerusalem. So there's going to be a a uh, very uh, strong Jewish presence within Israel and Jerusalem until the temple is destroyed. But there is a somewhat of a uh, disbursement of the believers back into the diaspora, particularly around Antioch. And of course, in Antioch, this group begins to be called Christians. They're first called Christians in Antioch. Now, Barnabas grabs Paul, who's not welcome in Jerusalem, because uh, he persecuted. Now he's a believer. He's got all that Torah training, and he brings him into Antioch in order to uh, minister to these believers and to teach them. And then, of course, the Lord calls Paul out of that into what we call his missionary journeys. So in uh, chapter 19 of uh, 
Acts, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, We haven't heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Not, not well stated here. What it really is saying is they said, uh, We didn't know the Holy Spirit had come. Remember, these are disciples of John. They're part of John's little uh, yeshiva or havara in that sense. So he says, what were you baptized? And they said, John's baptism. So they're disciples of John the Baptist. And they don't know about Pentecost. For some reason, they didn't hear about that. So Paul says, John baptized a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was coming after him, that is, Yeshua or Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men. So now we've got kind of this diaspora, uh, secondary Pentecost that's going on among these uh, believers. Uh, They enter into the synagogue and continue speaking boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Uh, But when some became hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, that's what this group was called, the the halakha, Jesus said, I am the way, I'm the way, uh, the truth, and the life. Um, He withdrew from them and took some of the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, I think his name was Rex. I can't prove that, but that's what I'm thinking. Okay, so here's what happens. The synagogue doesn't want them. Well, there are other groupings. There are other gatherings. One of those are the yeshivas. And one of those are the house fellowships. And in this case, what Paul does, he just takes those disciples over, it says. We'll just move into this one. Uh, So we begin to get this notion of there's more here than just synagogues. Okay, Then in Acts 20... Beginning of verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week when they were gathered together, there's that word, uh, break to break bread, uh, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. So don't give me trouble when I go a little longer, right? I'm not going till midnight, right? Uh, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. Uh, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting in the windowsill, uh, seeking into a deep sleep. Now, if people sleep when Paul's preaching, all right, I'm not going to worry too much, right? As Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and he fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Okay, this poor kid fell out the window uh, during the sermon, right? Uh, and Paul went down and fell on him and embraced him. He said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak. So this service went all night long. Now, when is it? Paul's leaving the next morning. This is probably the Havdalah. At the end of the Sabbath, they would, the early believers would meet Saturday night at sundown at the end of the Sabbath. Because that was when the resurrection took place. And so the believers just extended the Sabbath into the first day of the week and would break bread together. Because after all, that's what Jesus did uh, with them. And so they're, they're following that pattern. 
This will later be misunderstood as the first day of the week is the next morning. Paul's leaving the next morning. He can't travel on the Sabbath. He's leaving the next morning, and that's what's going on. Now, I want to make this a pattern. I don't want to put windows so people can fall out and that kind of thing. I'm just talking about these idea of gatherings where they gather, and they're finding rooms where they can gather and meet uh, for this purpose. So, we know from the Newer Testament that there are specific and explicit uh, examples of these house churches. And so I want to I give you those passages. We're going to talk about the nature of them. We're going to talk about how they operated. We're going to talk about their relationship to congregation. All that in the next few weeks. And then talk about them in our own context. Um, but I want to give you some passages so that you see that this is a biblical foundation for what we're doing. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 Verse 9. Okay, I'm going to be in trouble here. Oh, it's 19. I do this all the time when I don't wear my reading glasses. Okay, 16, 19. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prisca, you guys know her as Priscilla, I keep saying that because I was raised on that King James, right? Uh, You know them, they are tent makers, they are fellow workers with with Paul, Uh, greet you heartily in the Lord with the ecclesia, ecclesia that is in their house, okay? The church that is in their house, the gathering that is in their house. So here are leaders who have their gathering in their home. Now, we, we know that they did that because in Romans 16, the end of that book, Romans 16, verses 3 to 5, Paul says to the Corinthians, Greet uh, Prisca and Aquila, there again, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles. Notice we now have these ecclesias of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Okay, So again, very common for leaders within the community of faith to open their houses to, to draw people in, not, not for evangelism, but for the functioning of the faith within the community in that context. So, we learn from these texts that Priscilla or Prisca and Aquila had a gathering in their house, uh, in their home, which continued so that it could be mentioned at different times. This is not an occasional thing. This is a regular thing. It's mentioned in both these books that are written at least a year apart from each other. Uh, uh, And probably this is the norm and fuller conversation Uh, congregations would develop as numbers, money, and reduced persecution change the environment. Now, related to this is the passage in Colossians chapter 4. You know, I hate this popcorn approach to scripture, but we can't read all the letters. 
these are these are those greeting ends at the end of the letters. So in Colossians chapter 4, uh, verse 15 and 16, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha the, and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it read to the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Now, most people think, most scholars believe, that the Ephesian letter is the letter that went to Laodicea. I don't want to get into that. I don't care about that right now. The issue is this, that this person, and we don't know much about this person, the word nympha can be male or female, and we have texts that relate to it as his house or her house, so we don't actually know what's going on in here. It's possible that uh, a woman of means... And there were many women of means that were with the disciples. Most of them were widows. Some of them divorced. And they took care of many of the things with the disciples. Uh, There were Marys, 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 all with the disciples in that context. Uh, The widow taking care of Elijah. Very common in this notion of women of means who are... Uh, in a sense, caring for the broader church of God as their household and their house might be big enough to handle a congregation in that context uh, or a havara in that sense uh, as, as we're seeing it. One more text uh, for that and it's the, in the book of Philemon. You can go to any chapter. All right, who took my Philemon? The letter is to Philemon, but in there we have other people mentioned. So in the first three verses, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, to Timothy, our brother, uh, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to... uh, uh, Chippus, our fellow soldier, that idea, and to the church in your house. Again, the idea is whose house is it? Well, the closest name associated, and some of the Greek construction would indicate that this um, Archippus, whatever. Some people think he's the son of Philemon. Other people think he's got he's the pastor of that small group. Uh, that's the church house. We'll talk more about households uh, next time. Uh, this is he calls him a fellow soldier, fellow workers. These usually mean that they are uh, leaders in the congregation, perhaps a pastor. Uh, It's important to note in this context that the household in the first century was not monolithic. Could be a single person as a household. Could be a brother and two sisters like Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It could be an extended family so that you could have 30, 40 people living in a household, right? And so uh, it's, it's important that we don't just think, well, a household is a man and his wife and his 2.3 children, you know, that kind of sociological thing. Um, that idea of an immediate family is not the, the norm. So I'll talk about that more later. Um, 
But as the development of house gatherings or house congregations became normative in the apostolic period, it will continue throughout history. We will see in the Middle Ages, I'm not going to go through all the history, but in the Middle Ages, this is where some of the monasteries come, that idea. This is where uh, a lot of people, when the church became very corrupt, broke into house groups and did that kind of thing. We have an enormous history of this. And then the latest explosion of that took place in the 60s during the Jesus movement. It is at this point that in the Jewish community, we begin to get the explosion of Havarot connected to synagogues and as alternatives to synagogues. And we begin to get house churches. I'm familiar with that because my ministry included two attempts at house churches. One not all that successful, one significantly successful. And those things were uh, beginning to happen. Again, an a uh, period when people thought the Lord might be coming any moment, that, that issue of the uh, apocalypse kind of idea, the idea of uh, corruption in the denominations and, and the disruption of the body of Christ, we begin to get this push for those. We're beginning to see it again now, uh, and several of the Messianic organizations and many con- uh, denominations are beginning to look at these for church planning and for sustaining of congregations in areas where there might be persecution or other difficulties. So um, in each case, we have formality and informality and a variation of functions and purpose, which I'm going to talk about uh, later as well. So let me uh, read to you my conclusion so that I don't leave something out. Uh, The foundational structure of Judaism was the temple. Supplemental to that was the synagogue and house gatherings, which formed the context of the early disciples of Yeshua, both Jewish and Gentile. With the loss of the temple and the diaspora of Israel back in full force, the communities of faith established parallel forms of religious household, mini congregation, which would be a house church or a havara, and the standard congregation, which later became known as a church or a temple or, or whatever uh, the denomination wanted to call it. History and culture provides a changing environment for both Jewish and Christian expressions of the gathering of God's people. Um, over time, variations, very group, groups separated. They separated they created their own form, then they remerged, and some of the characteristics of that separate group is now part of the standard. In other words, there is this um, expansion and merging that goes on throughout history as regards to to what extent do we need to use groupings? Do we need a women's group? Do we need a men's group? Youth groups coming out of the Jesus movement are part of this kind of idea. Uh, The danger is always, do they separate so much that they become uh, isolated from the rest of the body? Uh, Or are they uh, so much a part of the uh, congregation that they, in a sense, are unable to breathe, right? And that becomes part of the problem in this context. The result is a history of gatherings that fit the time and challenges of assimilation and persecution, 
while we, and I'm talking about us collectively in that context, trust in the God of Israel and wait for his son, the Messiah, to return and establish his kingdom, restoring the kingdom of David to Israel and ruling the nations with a rod of iron, and peace will dwell over all the earth. The Disciple Center was formed and informed by all of these variations. We'll talk about this throughout that. Some will be familiar to you. Some you may not have picked up in the process. Um, And it's time for us, I think, to become more clear in our understanding and our adaptation of these systems of gatherings as we meet a secular and increasingly hostile culture, which we really got a a reminder yesterday uh, of the anti-Semitism that still exists. And of course, as we are identified with the God of Israel and the Israel of God, uh, uh, there won't be a major distinction in the hatred and the anger. We will be persecuted uh, by those who hate Israel, and we will be persecuted by those in the church who want to replace Israel uh, in that that sense. So... uh, I think as we reach this secular and increasingly hostile culture that we, our children, and those who we influence, whether they convert from outside or just they're part of this faith but were never really discipled appropriately, need to not become victims of assimilation and that we can endure the persecution that may come. To do that, we have to be even more relational than we've been. That's difficult for some of us. But the need to be relational, the need to be able to trust, the need to know that when somebody says something about one of us, our first reaction isn't, really? I thought there was something wrong with them. But to say, you're going to have to prove that to me because I know them and that's not their character. That's the level of of knowledge and intimacy and trust that a havara, a congregation, a localized congregation needs to have to avoid assimilation and to avoid persecution dividing us and conquering us in that context. So I'm hoping that we will begin a discussion with this series. We'll again move into some uh, practice of a havara, not waiting for the building to not work, but to begin to, at, on certain weekends, not meet here, but meet in those kind of settings where people know where they can go. Uh, we know who, where we would expect people to be. We don't want to assign that. We want, I think that relationships dictate those kinds of things rather than age groupings and alphabetizing and even sometimes geography. So we'll, we'll take a look at that and try to address that. Now, remember, if we do multiple issues like that, that means that people are going to have to be doing the readings, people are going to have to be doing the prayers, people are going to have to be doing uh, discussions of, of the message, if, or maybe even giving the message. There will, we will need instruments, we will need locations, we will need places to baptize, we'll need all kinds of things uh, in that context. So this really ramps up the level of participation uh, in that context because 
uh, it's kind of like when you go camping and everybody's got to help, right? So uh, that's part of what this is about. Remember, the Disciple Center is a lab in that sense. It's also a place where we are trying to make sure that if, God forbid, we reach a point where we're not allowed to meet like this, we can go unscathed, continuing, because we are all trained, we're all able to function, and we're all able to help others grow in grace and knowledge in that context. So, let's go to the Lord in prayer.